Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. We've been talking and reminding ourselves Hebrews is this letter that is reminding us draw near to Jesus. Don't drift away from him because he is better. And it's going to be the message that we're going to continue to lean into week after week. And especially today as we finish up Hebrews chapter 3. Before we do that, let me start with a, uh, a little game that I'm going to call Guess the Percentage, okay? And we're going to start with a, a steakhouse in Amarillo that offers the Big Texan 72-ounce challenge. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yes. Anyone taken the challenge? No, we had someone in first hour. They were not successful. But the Big Texan 72-ounce challenge is uh, you get your meal free, if you can eat within one hour a 72-ounce steak, some bread, uh, some salad, a baked potato, and for some reason, a shrimp cocktail's thrown in there. So guess the percentage of people that begin the 72-ounce steak challenge and finish it within one hour. What percentage would you put on that? I heard 30, I heard five. 10, right there, perfect, 10%. 10% is what often happens. If you, just in case you're curious, the 10,000th uh, person completed the challenge last year. And so congrats to whoever that was. It was not to our friend that was in first hour. But now, on the complete flip side of life, I mean, literally the complete flip side of life, let's talk about an Ironman triathlon, okay? An Ironman triathlon, that's a 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112 mile bike ride followed by a 26.2 marathon thrown in there. What percent of Ironman competitors that start an Ironman finish it in the allotted time, which is about 16 or 17 hours? Anyone have a guess as to what percentage of competitors finish it? That was perfect. 95%. Can you believe that? 95% of people that start an Ironman finish it. And it's interesting to me, and yet at... Some way it kind of makes sense to me that, uh, that when you compare these two things that it's a little bit different. If I had to guess, the average person that takes on the 72-ounce steak challenge is like a traveler driving through Amarillo and they forgot that about 100 miles before they threw down some soda and some gummy bears and they see a billboard going, I can do that. And then about 15 minutes later, 15 minutes into the competition, the steak starts mingling with the soda and the gummy bears and it's like, yeah, I'm done. And they're looking at the plate and their eyes are like, yeah, you deceived me when I saw that billboard. Whereas the Ironman triathlon, I think they are disciplining themselves so that when their eyes begin to fail them, they lean on something much greater than what's before them. When the road begins to look long, when the swim feels hard, They fall back on their training and they get past what their eyes are telling them they can't or can't do. And they begin to lean into and that to what their training has done. And in that they're able to finish well. Now our physical eyes, I believed often betray us. And of course this goes well beyond Ironman and steak eating competitions. This is the challenge of 
our walks with Christ. Paul says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. And he even says in uh, Romans 10 that faith comes through hearing, not seeing, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. And I think in part it's because our eyes never have enough proof. When we're to walk by sight, when we walk by sight, our eyes never have enough proof. In fact, it says that in Proverbs 27, 20, that our eye, the eyes of man are never fully satisfied. There's never enough proof. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence, our eyes always want a little bit more. And so we've got to be a people that Paul's kind of telling us, hey, we've got to be a people that come, our faith comes by hearing and that we walk by faith, not by sight, lest we begin to fall into disbelief. And that's exactly where we are in the book of Hebrews. We are in the second warning passage of Hebrews. Uh, in Hebrews 3, 1 through 4, 14, we are going to move through now looking at disbelieving the gospel. What happens when we begin to drift from the good news of Christ. And really what begins to happen, let me define disbelief for us so we have a working definition, but disbelief is what happens when we begin to stop trusting, when we stop trusting God's power, presence, provision, and promises. And I believe a lot of this happens because we're looking forward only with our eyes and we're not cultivating a faith in here. And this is absolutely what happens to a non-believer and I will tell you, this is quite possibly in play for the believers that are in the room today because it's practically what happens when you drift. We're going to keep looking at these warning passages and they progress upon each other. And what happens naturally when you drift from any object over time, the further away you get from it, the smaller that object appears. And you're in a really bad place when you've drifted so far away that you begin to believe that God is small. And that's the warning passage in which the Hebrews author is going to lean into and going, hey guys, you are getting dangerously close to your God is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And remind you, he's talking to an audience. Our pastor in Hebrews is talking to an audience that is facing persecution. And so what they see with their eyes is affecting how well they're finishing the race of pursuing Christ. They're seeing some of their messianic Jewish believers begin to be persecuted, maybe even begin to be martyred, and they're wanting a way out. And as their physical eyes fail them, it's informing their faith. Now, as we talked about last week, as the author is even speaking to Hebrews, he's also tracking with the Old Testament nation of Israel, and he's walking with them, and we're walking, we followed Moses off of Mount Sinai, and now we're gonna follow this generation into the wilderness, and we're gonna watch what happened to the wilderness generation once they got delivered from Egypt. And we're gonna heed the warning that happened in their life because their disbelief would cost that generation of Israelites dearly. And even as we do that, we need to know that we're tracking with ourselves for doubting God's promises and provision and power is not a problem of yesterday. It's the problem that faces each one of us today too. We are prone to drift and ultimately drift into disbelief and try to walk by eyesight as opposed to faith. And we're cultivating the wrong thing. And when we walk by sight and not by faith, we are in sin and it will cost us dearly. So before us, we have a timely passage for both yesterday 
and today. And with any warning passage, before we read it, I just think let's prepare our hearts humbly in order to receive it for. I think it can speak to each one of us in the room. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Warning passage number two. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath that they shall not enter rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We're gonna dig into the example of what is often called the wilderness generation. They were first and foremost, the Exodus generation. They were the the generation that got delivered out of bondage from Egypt. And they were called to go to the promised land. And then as we'll soon see, they would end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief. And so it's in their example that we're gonna dig into it this morning. Now, it's interesting, this wilderness generation is spoke often of, that, that little passage that we just quoted from the, what said the Holy Spirit there actually comes from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is calling back to the wilderness generation as it unpacks what happened in Numbers 13 and 14. All of which, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, was recorded for our instruction that we might benefit, that we might heed the warning that the wilderness generation had with their unbelief. All four of the texts of God's word blending together to offer us a really good warning to heed. Now, before we dig in and and, and understand what's happening with the wilderness generation, we need to do both a geography lesson and a history lesson. First, let's do geography. And one thing you need to know is that there are spiritual lessons in the geography of Israel. There's spiritual lessons in the geography of the Middle East. For example, and if some of you that have ever walked through regeneration and you've been with me at a commencement, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 11.11 that I like to quote a lot, which is that Israel is a land of hills and valleys. Some of you remember, I've quoted that, it's, it's kind of random, but it's that picture of those people that have been delivered out of bondage God's calling them to a a promised land. And that promised land, it's filled with hills and valleys. There's gonna be some trials and tests amidst some of the glories that are with following Jesus. And so again, I think that yes, that describes both the topography of Israel, but it's also a picture of what awaits the believer, even in the promised land. 
their spiritual lessons in the geography of Israel. None of that is more clear than when you start to look at Egypt, wilderness, and the promised land. Egypt spiritually represents sin and bondage. And it did for Israel for 430 years and it represents that truth, that same truth for us as believers today. It's a place where all of us are born into an Egypt, so to speak. We're all born into lifelong slavery. And then if you kind of follow our map here, we'll, we'll skip the, the, the wilderness for a second. And the goal, once you're delivered from Egypt, is to get to the promised land. Ultimately, the promised land is about life here, right now. It can taste, it can be a, a shadow of heaven. But when, we, when, when scripture talks about the promised land, it's not talking about only a future heaven. It's talking about experiencing the fullness of life that God has for us right now. So as we've been delivered from Egypt, the goal is to walk deeply with Jesus in what we'll call the promised land. It's a picture of what Israel was trying to do as well. And then in between is this middle where you are free from bondage, you've been delivered from Egypt, and yet you're not experiencing the fullness of life that God intends. And it's in this middle that if we had to play the guess the percentage game, I have to think that there's more in this middle than we might think. And it's this passage, and it's for this reason that the Hebrews author is going, we've got to pay closer attention. There are spiritual lessons in the geography of Israel for us. And then let's, Look at the history lesson real quick and see how those three played out. As many of you know, and as we've already talked about, Israel was in Egypt under bondage and slavery. God with a mighty hand delivers them out and they saw it, they witnessed it, they experienced it. They, they saw miracle after miracle. They saw a lot with their eyes. And what should have taken them two weeks to get to the promised land takes them 40 years because this was not a geographical journey that they were on. This was a spiritual journey that Israel was going on. They were trying to walk by sight instead of faith. And the eyes are never satisfied. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And yet they wanted more of that as opposed to cultivating the faith and trust in God's promises. God had been promising them for centuries. There is a land that I am bringing you into and it is a land flowing with milk and honey. But it was a test of faith. And they struggled to believe that God who is who he says he is. And that God will provide as he says he will. And that his promises will come true. So give or take a few days, they're on the cusp of the promised land. They are moving towards it. And that's where we pick up the story in Numbers 13 and 14 as to what happens. They are on the cusp. They, are, they could have taken God's promises for what they were. And yet they decide on the cusp of the promised land to send 12 spies in to check out the land and see if the land is as God says it is. And that's where we pick up the story in Numbers 13, verse 27. It says this, the spies go into the land 40 days later, and then it says they come back to the congregation, they come back to Moses, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And look, this is its fruit. The promise is true. The land is as God has said it. However, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong. 
and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And that chapter within, and it says, we seemed to ourselves, the spy said, like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. They see the land is as God said it is, and yet then they see all the other things and their eyes begin to fail them and their eyes begin to inform their faith and they disregard and they stop trusting God's promises, presence, power, and provision. And then, that's always what happens when God is small in your eyes. When you drift away from God, all the trials that are between you and what's ahead begin to look impossible. They begin to look like level 10, as it did for our Israelites. So much so that in Numbers 14, two, it goes on to say, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. How quick we forget. When God is small in your eyes, a return to sin looks really good. You begin to long for the place that you once were. It's exactly what's happening in Israel. Do you know what percentage of adult men finished the journey from Egypt to the promised land? Anyone know that percentage? Point zero, 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 three percent. Out of 603,550 adult men, only two completed the journey. All of them delivered out of bondage. Only two of them entered the land where they got to experience the fullness of what God has to offer. How did we get to that place? This was the generation that saw miracle after miracle after miracle. Well, Numbers 14 verse 22 gives us a, a little bit of a, of a glance. It says that they had, that they had rejected God 10 times. 10 different instances. We're not gonna move through those 10 instances, but I want you to see a chart. These are the 10 instances that Numbers 14, 22 is, is specifically referring to. And in each one of these instances, they were slowly chipping away at their belief. And they would disbelieve God's power and provision and commandments along the way so that as each step of disbelief took place, each time they doubted of a provision, a promise, a presence of God. God looked smaller and smaller and smaller. By the time that they got to the promised land, they doubted the promise of what the Lord had given them. It was one compromise at a time. And because God was small in their eyes, the trials overwhelmed them and the temptations overcame them. And so it's with that in mind that the pastor's going We've got to lean in. We've got to heed the warning that's in front of us. And this stuff was written for our instruction as well. So let's go back and, and read verses seven through 11 in Hebrews three real quick, just to stir our hearts yet again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, today, if you hear his voice, not if you can see it all laid out in front of you, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion even if you've strayed, even if you've drifted a little bit, come back. For they hardened in the day of testing in the wilderness and the fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They saw my judgment for 40 years. They tasted it. 
And therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart because they have not known my ways. And look at the privilege that they forfeited. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Derek's going to unpack what that word rest means more next week, but just a little glimpse is this this picture of they didn't get to enter into the fullness of life that God intended for them. So it can be with us as well. For those of us that get stuck in the middle, we forfeit lots of privileges, and so we are to lean in. We are to then listen to two exhortations and two warnings. That's where the passage goes next in verses 12 through 15. Let's look at the the, the two exhortations, the two positive commands. One, it says, take care, brothers. Take care, sisters. Lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, which would lead you to fall away from the living God. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. The first exhortation is take care, take heed, beware. Each time we've kind of leaned into this word in the Hebrew series, we're telling you it means an extra degree. Pay much closer attention. What did we say last week? right? Vigilant, unrivaled attention, take heed. This has the connotation of of perpetual diligence to stir of us and that we are to look to our own hearts to stir our own faith. And so this might be a really good place for you to stop and to go, how am I doing with those four P's of God, his presence? Am I cultivating, seeking his presence? And remember, this is a spiritual issue, not a geographical problem. The Lord is always present with believers. The question is, are we present with him? This is a spiritual question for you and me. Are his promises, is that what we're trusting? Is it his provision that we're not trusting? How are you doing at that? Or do you trust that God will take care of you ultimately? Or maybe it's his power in your life that you doubt We're to examine our own hearts. That's one of the things that the pastor is getting at. This is a lifestyle of what we are to do, examining our heart consistently. We do that for ourselves, and then look what we do for others. It says, exhort one another every day. That word for exhort is parakleo, which is mean to come alongside to give aid to, render help to someone. This is not me yell at someone that's seated far from me. This is come alongside and let's sit together and do this life with one another. This is a call and a reminder that perseverance, what we're all called to do, this is a communal project. That if we are to finish well, if we are to find ourselves in and get into the promised land, we must work with one another, Christ in us, in order to get to all the places that God desires for us to get. It's where he's going to go eventually in 14 that we've got to hold to our original confidence. That, that word is steadfastness. It, it's perseverance. It's commitment. It might show up in your Bible. And so how do we do this? We gather as the church. He, he, he unpacks a little bit of this in, in Hebrews 10, verses 24, 25, a famous passage later on in Hebrews that we'll get to that says, let us Again, the church, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. This is a communal project of stirring up perseverance, not neglecting to meet together as is some, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
And the only way that you can see that day drawing near is through the eyes of faith that we're cultivating here. We've got to work together, church. And as we've continued, as we mentioned last week, we are the body of Christ. We are to come alongside one another. And it's a reminder. And I want to lean into our online audience for a second. I know some of you are at home today because you're sick or you're not able to be with us for a variety of reasons. Maybe you're traveling or with family out of town. And I just, this is a great meeting. And I'm so grateful that we get to interact in this way. And yet we also know that we have some friends that are watching online that, that you've mistaken this for the church. And this is not the church setting. This is not us ultimately meeting together and sharpening one another and using our gifts to mutually spur on one another. If this is a moment in time, great, we're so glad you're locked in. But if this has been your way of participating with City Bridge or any other church for a long period of time, I want to call you deeper into fellowship with the body and not neglect meeting together corporately and in person it's a reminder. That's one of the ways that we can exhort each other today. The second is we've got to call ourselves. This is this reminder why we're City Bridge Community Church. Community here is the laboratory. It's this groups of four, six, eight, ten people where we live out the one another's of Scripture, some of which we just read in Hebrews 10. And I'll be honest, sometimes it takes faith, doesn't it, to kind of go to that community group another time, right? Sometimes it's like, oh, do I, uh, is God going to do anything in this group with today? And we have to remind ourselves that this is one of the primary great means of God's grace in our life. And so I know some of you are working hard to get into community. I know some of you are struggling in your particular group, but this is a reminder passage that it's worth it. Take heed the warning that God's getting after. And community can be a great means of grace to stir perseverance in your life. We exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. I think one of the ways that we can do that is we need more stories of the promised land in this room. We need to tell more stories. We need more reports. We need more Joshua's and Caleb's. They were the two spies that, that got to see the promised land because they told a faithful report of the promised land. And we need more people that are walking as Christ intends for them to walk, sharing their stories of what it's like to dwell richly with the Lord. We need your stories. We need more stories about the promised land and its goodness. We need more moments like Ronnie of going, I can't, but God can, and I've seen it, and I've tasted it. I think sometimes the reason why you and I sometimes don't have stories from the promised land is we've never been there. Even though we've trusted in Christ for our salvation, we haven't tasted the fullness of life that God offers us, and we don't have stories there because we've never fully been there. This is what this passage is warning us. You don't want to stay stuck in the middle. You've been called to a greater land we listen to these exhortations. We look to ourselves and we look to one another so that, let's look at the two warnings. Lest there be in any of you, back to verse 12, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's kind of a scary verse. Makes you wonder, can, can, can that happen to me? I'm a believer. Can, I, can my heart turn into an evil, unbelieving heart leading me to fall away? I think the answer is yes believer. Can you begin to doubt God's promises, power, provision, presence? Well, then what happens if you do that enough? You drift 
and you drift and you drift and God gets smaller and smaller and it gets easier to drift and drift and by default you're falling away from the living God because you've produced a disbelieving heart that begins to long for back of Egypt. And so absolutely, now let me be really clear, falling away in this passage, I do not think at all equates to a loss of salvation. You didn't earn your salvation by good works. I don't think you can lose them. We know you can't lose them by bad works. But that doesn't mean you can't fall away and backslide into a really far away place from the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Falling away is what happens in a believer's life when we repeatedly reject the power and promises of God through disbelief. And though it may not equate to a loss of salvation, it will equate to a loss of privileges. You will miss out on all the fullness and richness that Christ intends for you. It's the only thing that can happen when you leave the living God. Every other thing we pursue besides the living God either ends in a dead end or with a dead God. It's the only thing that can happen when we stray. So why would we do this? How does this happen? Well, because sin is deceitful. That's the second warning. Exhort one another, verse 13, as long as, uh, as, uh, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the ways that sin is most deceitful is how it attacks the eyes. Sin pleases our eyes a lot of times. Sin convinces us that, that, it, it, that, that maybe that this is, is harmless. Sin gives immediacy to our eyes. Sometimes our faith, we're longing for, for, for a future day. But then sin comes along and it takes our eyes, our heart off that, our faith off that. And it brings like this short-lived fleeting pleasure. And sometimes sin emboldens our eyes. Like, have you ever been in that moment? And sometimes it can be a big thing. Sometimes it can be a small thing, but you kind of look around and you're like, did I get away with it? Did anyone see me? Oh, I think I'm okay. That's sin's deceitfulness. You haven't gotten away with anything. Maybe no one saw you in the moment, but there's something happening to your heart in the moment. You're being hardened. Every little sin chips away at your relationship with God. Every little sin harden you, hardens you to the work of God and to the word of God so that it has a harder time penetrating and softening you and bringing you to a place of repentance. This is what was happening to the wilderness generation 10 times and we have to heed their example because sin is deceitful. On its best day, sin gives you a little bit of short-lived pleasure. And on its worst day, it will kill you. Or at a minimum, leave you longing for a return to Egypt where you were enslaved in bondage. And you get there slowly, one compromise at a time because sin is deceitful. And so we need to heed those warnings. And then the passage this little section ends with, for we have come to share in Christ. We prove our faith. We prove that we're in the promised land, enjoying the fullness of life, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It doesn't mean we prove our salvation by works. We've earned our salvation by works, by being perseverant. But we prove that there was a faith that began for us a long time ago when God got us out of Egypt, when we hold fast to that perseverance and enjoy the fullness 
of what God intends for us in the promised land. And so as it is said, he reminds us again today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion because everyone in here is capable of a heart that gets hard. And so we've got to heed the warning. We have to lean into this moment. The spirit of God in each one of us, it's always a really good sign when you don't cross your arms and go, that's not me. It's always a really good sign when the Spirit of God says, hey, tune in right here. We've got work to do, each one of us in this area. So use today. Today is this idea of this this sense of urgency. Yeah, today could in theory mean a kind of a 24-hour window, like right now, there's an immediacy. Take advantage of it. But it's also this picture of today's the day. This is the era to cultivate our faith. We walk in today by faith, not by sight. Today is the day. This is the era by which we live out our faith. Many of us have trusted God with our eternities, like literally trillions upon trillions upon trillions of days. And yet many in this room, myself included on certain days, we struggle to trust God with this day. And so this is a warning passage to remind us not to get hard here. Let's look at the last four verses and remind ourselves of what happened to the wilderness generation because they forfeited a great privilege. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Remember this, before they were the wilderness generation, this was the Exodus generation. They had been delivered from a mighty hand. And yet ultimately this passage, it's reminding us all they did was exchange one prison for another. One form of bondage for a different one. Unbelief. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? This was a group of people that was destined for the promised land where life was to its fullest and yet they died in the desert. And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief is costly. It cost millions of people from Egypt a chance at the sweet promised land and they forfeited. And so I just, this warning was written for our benefit so that we might not waste their pain. And so the question for you, and I think this is, is helpful, and one, it's, a, it's a really faithful trait for those that are trying to remind themselves that Egypt is not as it appeared. What's some of the things that you have forfeited along the way because you weren't walking deeply with Christ, that you weren't in the promised land? Jot those down. I have a, literally probably about 10 to 15 pages of things that I've cost, privileges I've cost myself relationships that I've deeply wounded because I didn't walk faithfully in the promised land. I stayed middling around in the wilderness. And I write it down not to produce guilt and shame, not to produce great condemnation. I write it down so that I don't waste the pain and I remind myself what Egypt and what the wilderness is like so that I long to stay in the promised land. The wilderness generation cost themselves dearly. And they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Not because the cities were big, not because there were giants in the land, not because the walls of the place were fortified. They weren't able to enter because of unbelief. 
And it's in that place that the pastor leaves that warning ringing in the ears of his hearers and it leaves ringing in ours ear today. Where is your life drifting away and maybe producing disbelief where you don't trust in all of God's goodness? I keep reminding myself that, man, this really could have been, this could have been the Exodus generation. And yet we call them the wilderness generation. They were the generation that was destined for the promised land. They could have been the promised land generation. The land that was offered to their forefathers in Abraham way back in Genesis 12, they could have been that. At a minimum, they could have at least been the manna quail generation. But through unbelief, they continued to harden themselves. Makes me just kind of want to ask the questions, who, who are we going to be, City Bridge? Who are we going to be in this room? How are we going to finish well? And if we're to finish well, it can't be by eyesight. I think the more we talk about it a lot, the more we keep looking out there, we see the eyes are going to betray us more and more, but we've got to cultivate a faith here that goes deeper, that is prepared for when, when, when the going starts to get tough. We begin to rely on a faith that is not by sight. So in this room, I know that there's a variety of friends and I want to speak to each one of you for a second and then we'll pray to my friends here that are in the promised land that are experiencing the fullness of life that Christ has to offer that doesn't mean you're perfect doesn't mean everything in your life is going well but by and large you're, you're, you're walking deeply with the Lord I want to just say keep going tell stories of where you're at and what the Lord's doing in your life it's not bragging to tell about the, what the Lord is providing for you And now he's making provision and revealing his power through your life. Tell stories of the promised land. Others of us need to hear, to be reminded of it. We need your example. And don't go back. Finish your race. Finish well. To the Egyptians in the room, I don't mean geographical. I mean those that are spiritually currently stuck in bondage. This passage reminds us that sin has devastating consequences. It comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so if you're stuck in Egypt, I want to tell you there is a better way. Just like Israel was delivered from Egypt through the blood of the Lamb, there is a deliverer that has come, and his name is Jesus Christ, and you don't have to stay stuck in the land. There are other lands that are much richer. There is a deep, abiding, full relationship with Christ that awaits, and it is infinitely better than the deceitfulness that you're buying into in sin. And so come out of the land today. Don't harden your heart And if there's anyone in the middle, and if I had to guess, it's probably a higher percentage than any of us care to think. And maybe this is a good moment for us all to lean in for a second. If there's any of us meddling around in the middle, I want to call you out of it too. You're missing out on the fullness that God has for you. You are testing the warnings of Scripture. And I'm not saying your salvation is at stake, but your sanctification and the goodness that the Lord wants to produce in your life. And I'm not talking about health. I'm not talking about wealth stuff. That There's goodness that the Lord wants to produce in you so that you can taste the fullness of all that he has to offer. That awaits you and you're missing out. And when you miss out, you forfeit really 
incredible privileges. And you don't get to enter the fullness of his rest that he offers for you, and that is costly. Disbelief is always costly. So, now I think it's often uh, true that many of us can look back at the Old Testament and think of God as vindictive, brutal, and harsh. And I want to remind you what the author of Hebrews is going to remind us is that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This God that sometimes we think of vindictive. Do you know what he did with the wilderness generation? Those that lingered where they should not linger, even as they were costing themselves privileges. Do you know where that God was the whole time? For 40 years, he never left them. He never forsook them. He was right beside them the entire time miraculously providing food for them day in, day out in the form of manna, 40 years, sovereignly protecting them. They had to be a ragtag, weary group of faithless travelers. And yet the Lord protected them 40 years from the various enemies that were all over the land. That's a good God who doesn't seem vindictive, brutal, and harsh, but maybe always present. And imagine... If that's the God of the wilderness, what might be that God in the promised land? That's the challenge for you and I. I want you to taste how good the God is in the land of the living. And I don't want you to miss out. And I definitely don't want us as City Bridge to miss out that all that God has in store for us. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.